Fantasy is a natural human activity. It does not destroy or even insult reason. For creative fantasy is founded on a recognition effect, but not a slavery to it. From an essay on fairy stories by J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Nicholas Kotar, author of fantasy inspired by Slavic fairy tales and seeker after the good, the true, and the beautiful. You're listening to Fantasy for Our Time. In this podcast, I discuss classic and new fantasy media, have long and involved conversations with authors and storytellers, and explore how stories can help us all live a better, more fulfilling life. Hello, dear friends, and welcome to episode three of Fantasy for Our Time. Today, I wanted to talk about a wonderful novel by C.S. Lewis called Till We Have Faces. Before we get into the breakdown of this novel that surprised me in many ways, I didn't like it the first time I read it, I want to let you all know that the reason I'm talking about it today is because we just finished reading Till We Have Faces, or we're about to finish reading the novel as part of my Patreon page's uh, book club. We have a book club. It's a wonderful book club. We've had it for the past year and a half over at at patreon.com slash nicholaskotar, my Patreon page. Uh, we've managed to read The Lord of the Rings. We've read uh, some really wonderful examples of both classic and modern fantasy. But the really great thing about this book club is not that we read the books, but that but that we talk about it. There is a wonderful group of people who have some very interesting ideas about everything that we read, and we have a great time, even though it's all virtual, it's all on Zoom. And if going on Zoom with people that you don't know particularly well is something that isn't all that appealing to you, you should know that uh, my Patreon has a lot of other things that I offer, including uh, an opportunity to receive every single book that I publish in ebook format from here to eternity. It's one of the things I offer my pa- uh, patrons. So if you're interested, check it out at patreon.com forward slash Nicholas Kotar and uh, come and join us if you like. Today I wanted to talk about um, something that struck me, and I think many of you have, have been noticing this happening uh, on the larger cultural stage, but I'm going to couch it first in a story. Marlon James is a wonderful author of realistic fiction and fantasy. Uh, he has been up for various awards, including, I think, National Book Award. Uh, he's considered by many to be a real master of the craft. I've started to read one of his novels um, but I think uh, I'm not going to go very far in his particular oeuvre because uh, he's very sharp-edged and uh, quite explicit and a little bit too mm, caustic for my tastes. Not a criticism, just uh, a reflection more of my uh, thin skin. But this uh, author, Marlon James, um, had a conversation with a friend about uh, The Hobbit when the movies were coming out. The Hobbit movies, that is, not The Lord of the Rings. Um, You all should know that I have very little respect for the Hobbit movies. I think they're terrible. Um, But we can talk about that maybe in a different episode. But in this uh, conversation that Marlon James had with his friend, uh, he is reported to have said that uh, he was upset with the fact that um, the cast largely was not representative of 
uh, America in the 21st century. And he is reported to have said something along the lines of, if they had an Asian or a black dwarf, uh, nobody would care. Now, this conversation was had a while back when the books, when the movies, the Hobbit movies were still coming out. So I think we, we now know that uh, his sanguine thought about nobody caring about multiracial dwarves or hobbits has not been largely proved false, uh, especially ever since the the, uh, the beginning of the loud internet furor over um, the trailer for The Rings of Power. But again, that's not what I want to talk about today. What I wanted to talk about was that it, during the course of this conversation where the friend was, com- was uh, countering that no, people would care, Marlon James answered and said, well, what does it matter? It's not real. It's just a story. Now, this topic, what is real, what is not real, really deserves its own episode. And I think I might actually do that at some point because this is a question that people don't give enough thought to and I have some rather loud opinions about. But let's consider something about the fact that (laughs) these people who say, what does it matter if we have multicultural dwarves or hobbits in the Lord of the Rings or in the Second Age or in the Hobbit, what does it matter if we do? Because it's not real. I think uh, it's been proven to be, I think that's simply, they don't even believe that themselves because there's been a real loud, mm, there's been a lot of complaining about fans who do not like the multicultural new version of the rings of power and the people who insist on diversity being something that is good for the lord of the rings make it very clear uh, in their apology for including multicultural dwarves and elves that it's not a matter of this not being real that actually it's all very much part of reality and that it's important to have uh, one's reality in the real world whatever that is be reflected properly in the fictional world by complaining loudly on both sides, I think everybody is declaring that whether or not they say it out loud, they do believe that the world of story is much more real and much more important than perhaps they are willing to admit initially. So I wanted to consider about how people more intelligent than I relate to certain aspects of storytelling, specifically the hero's journey or the heroic quest or whatever you might call it, to to actually show that people from all walks of life do honestly believe that these aspects of storytelling, these storytelling structures or stories themselves are a lot more important and are a lot more significant than simple entertainment. The first example is something that maybe you all have noticed, and that's Jordan Peterson, especially recently, has been talking a lot about how people are nested in stories and how being nested in a story is part of something like evolution's meaning-making mechanism, as how he might put it. It's something that's not merely necessary for survival, though it is that, but it is also integral for living a life that offers consolation in the midst of suffering. He's been talking a lot about the reality of suffering, not only your own suffering, but the suffering of those around you, and it being everywhere present and constant, and how part of the way that human beings make meaning in a way that uh, allows them to continue moving through the suffering is related to seeing themselves or others 
as heroes in a journey that follows, in a lot of ways, the beats of the traditional hero's journey uh, in old fairy tales. Second example is uh, something you might find in Jonathan Pajot, uh, where he has repeatedly talked about the fact that the hero's journey and its essentially cyclical or re repetitive nature is on some level a reflection of reality as reality actually is. So it's not merely a convention that has passed down from generation to generation, but it's something that reflects the way that the world truly is at its core. So when you read heroes' journeys, when you see them in well-done uh, well versions of them on the screen, when you experience them in whatever way you do, it can result in a powerful experience of oneness and wholeness he might say, because it takes you out of yourself and allows you to experience the world not as you see it, because the way the, the way you see the world is necessarily going to be very limited by your own experience, by your upbringing, by the limitations of your own eyes and ears, but as the world actually is. Here's a third example, and it's another, it's an example from a different perspective entirely. I recently had a conversation with a uh, professional folklorist or somebody who has a PhD in, in folkloristics who complained to me about my constant harping about the importance of the hero's journey as a kind of universal paradigm. He says that actually most folklorists consider the Joseph Campbell version of, of the hero's journey, the hero with a thousand faces, to be something that is not at all universal, that it is limited largely to a very small subset of stories, largely Western ones, and that it can and does have the prob problematic nature of putting a preference on one kind of tradition. And invariably, of course, people coming from that perspective are going to call that tradition a colonizing and oppressive Western one, preferring that to all others. So therefore, it's not a good thing. And he, uh, he also added, and other people I've heard also add this caveat, that, people who, that some people, particularly young men of a certain stripe, uh, when imbibing too much of the hero's journey's wine, can become toxic in the way that they encounter the world because rather than seeing themselves as the hero truly is, because the hero is one who travels constantly through ever-increasing cycles of disaster and coming to a resolution that is largely outside of himself, not seeing it in that sense, but seeing it in a more toxic, self-assertive, masculinity-forward sense tend to uh, hurt innocent people around them. And I did make the argument that on a cultural level, uh, Russia seeing itself as a spiritual kind of hero in this struggle between itself and the West um, has led to a, a very dangerous worldview in which the, the death of innocent civilians is largely papered over as something necessary for a holy cause. I don't believe that, but there are plenty in people of there are plenty of people in Russia who will say that. So as you can see from these examples, I think it's clear that even if people might complain and say, well, it's just stories, what are you getting all in a huff about? People on all sides of the ideological spectrum do actually, in fact, agree that the reality of the hero's journey, the reality of storytelling structures in our lives is such, is, has a much higher importance than perhaps we are willing to admit. This really struck me in a very powerful way as I was finishing Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis uh, on my bike as I was uh, training for an adventure race that's happening next month. More on that later. <laughs> because it struck me that um, C.S. Lewis is doing something very profound in this, his most difficult of novels. 
If C.S. Lewis's previous novels, Narnia and the Cosmic Trilogy, are very clear about their apologetics, about their Christian apologetics, and are very obvious uh, in their didactic, if not uh, propagandistic, um, way of storytelling. I don't think they're they're propagandistic, and I think most people who are not Christians will still be able to find things to enjoy about both Narnia and the Cosmic Trilogy. But still, it's very clear what his authorial perspective is. That is not so clear on the surface of Till We Have Faces. Till We Have Faces is a very profound, very deep, very difficult novel. And the first time I read it when I was 16 years old, about, thereabouts, I was in the middle of a, of a sprint reading as many books by C.S. Lewis as I possibly could, and as many books uh, by J.R.R. Tolkien as I possibly could. Um, this was probably my second or third time reading through The Lord of the Rings at that point. I read this book and I got to the end and I didn't understand what was going on. And partially, as I remember it now, this was a problem actually of marketing. And <laughs> this is interesting just to show you how much a book really, the, the cover of a book really does determine a person's uh, experience of it. In the, the, the paperback that I had, it was made incorrectly, the point was made incorrectly on the back cover blurb, that this book was about um, a very ugly main character, a hideously ugly main character, who is later on revealed to be actually beautiful. So I thought that this was one of those traditional fairy tale type narratives where an ugly character through a series of uh, fairy tale story beats, which oftentimes mimic or mirror the hero's journey, comes to have a new face placed on them by the act of some supernatural entity outside of themselves or is revealed to be actually much more beautiful than she herself saw than she saw herself to be a trope that is very famously and very unsatisfactorily lampooned of course by shrek um, a movie that i hate very deeply again perhaps a topic for a different conversation but that's not what this book is that is about at all so when i first read the, uh, the book when I was 16, I kept waiting for that resolution. And when it didn't come, I was very disappointed. And in the process, I was not paying attention to what is effectively a palimpsest. Those who don't know what that technical term is, a palimpsest is a parchment that has been uh, layered by, sev by uh, repeated um, levels of writing by scribes that have crossed out or expunged in some in some sense, uh, previous works on a on a piece of parchment because it's so expensive. It's not uh, particularly um, feasible to constantly make new pieces of parchment. It takes a long time, and, it, and it's like I said, very expensive. So oftentimes, what what people would do is they would cross out or expunge existing uh, scripts and then write new scripts on top of them. But the old scripts never really go away. They're still there because they've been etched into the skin of an animal. Um, and nowadays you can, with, with certain very impressive technologies, be able to separate the different layers of the manuscript and read all of them. That's what we call a palimpsest, that multi-layered um, manuscript. This novel is very much a palimpsest because it has many layers of meaning that uh, deepen the, the meaning of the story the farther deep you go. Very much like that image in uh, The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis, where the experience of... of uh, Aslan's country is likened to the unpeeling of an onion where each layer is larger than the, than the one before it instead of smaller. 
an image that I unconsciously mirrored um, in my own series of novels in the Raven Sun series. Um, unconsciously, clearly, uh, I had been reading C.S. Lewis a lot and it bled through, but I didn't remember that I was actually um, making an allusion to The Last Battle until much later when I reread it and realized, oh, whoops, <laughs> that's what I was doing. But that's what that's what ended up happening. In this palimpsest, the longer you sit with some of the really profound realities that he's that he's trying to show us through a storytelling uh, mechanism, the more I think we can be impressed with what storytelling can do to a person, I think. Because what this story is about is what it means to become human. Full stop. Which, of course, is what all stories are about. But this story is consciously about that. It's about what it really means and how that process occurs in a human life. So in the one sense, it is kind of allegorical because what happens to Orwell and also Psyche in the background is really what happens or what can happen to pretty much anybody, no matter what their circumstances in life. There is this very strong applicability in the beats of both of their journeys. Uh, that can this applicability is is very uh, strongly resonant with a lot of different lifestyles. That's what I would say. But what really struck me is that there are two kinds of journeys, two kinds of storytelling structures going on at the same time in this palimpsest. And the reason that it is a palimpsest is because one of the stories is happening in the background. This is a really difficult authorial um, technique that that is that some really good authors have taken advantage of. My favorite example of this actually is, is nothing to do with fantasy. It's in Jane Austen's novel, Emma. Uh, I've, I've read Emma several times. I've always loved Jane Austen. Um, Initially, it was because it made me feel warm and fuzzy, uh, the uh, the perfect resolution of all her plots. But later on, uh, I started to really appreciate her artistry as a writer. And the last time I, re I read Emma, I recognized that actually the author's sympathies are not with the main character. They're not with Emma. And throughout the entire novel, Jane Austen is very softly and very subtly uh, criticizing Emma. <laughs> Um, and making fun of her. And actually, I think the, the heroine of the story is Jane Fairfax. Now, um, those of you who've only watched the movie versions of this might think, what on earth? That has nothing to do with the story. Well, I challenge you to read the book again and pay attention to how Jane Austen tells the story of Jane Fairfax through subtext. How she tells the romance between her and Frank Churchill entirely through subtext. And this is what happens in Till We Have Faces because we have a pretty traditional psychological manifestation of the hero's journey in the character of Orwell, the sister of Psyche. But the, the journey of Psyche is going on in, mostly in the background throughout the course of the entire book. And we see glimpses of it through the eyes of Orwell, and we see the, con the conclusion of it in the glorious final scene of the book. And what ends up happening in that glorious final scene is something that's very profound. Because... What C.S. Lewis is doing through the journey of Orwell and through the journey of Psyche is actually saying to us that it doesn't matter what your journey is. You might have a hero's journey that you have to go through as a human being. You might have to have a heroine's journey that you go through as a human being. And those are different. And they 
encompass very different kinds of human experiences. But ultimately, it doesn't matter, according to C.S. Lewis, which journey you took. Because in the fulfillment of both, there is something that is universally human. And what that is, is something very beautiful and very profound. And we'll get to that at the end. But first, I want to break down what the hero's journey is and what the heroine's journey is through the specific lens of the of the character journeys of Orwell and Psyche. So Orwell is not a traditional hero. She's not chosen. Uh, she doesn't get a call to adventure from a mentor figure, not really. Not in the traditional sense like you would see in Star Wars or in uh, The Hobbit or in any number of very traditional hero's journeys. But she does go through many of the beats of a hero's journey. Because there is a call to adventure, and it is an unwilling one, but it is not one that is traditional. Here's what, And I'll explain what it is. Orwell, throughout most of the book, is playing a passive role to the more beautiful, the more interesting, and the more intelligent, more profound character of her sister, Psyche. At a certain point, Psyche leaves the scene. You'll have to read the book to, to understand how. And at that point, Orwell has to begin taking charge of her own life. And she has to do it in a fairly masculine way. Now, the hero's journey is not a uh, generically um, gendered journey. I hate using that language, but it's now common in, in, the, in the larger world, so I'm almost um, forced to. But what I mean is, a hero can be a man, and a hero can be a woman. Also, a heroine can be a man, and a heroine can be a woman. Uh, what I'm expressing here is not some brand new version of gender ideology, but just simply the uh, technical language of the structures of the hero and heroine's journey. You can have a, a female go through the hero's journey. The most obvious example of this recently is Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman is not a heroine, she's a hero. A point very clearly made in Gail Carriger's uh, The Heroine's Journey, a book that I've recommended before and continue to recommend, especially to aspiring writers. It's a, it's a very good and very interesting um, guide in how to write, technically how to write, The Heroine's Journey. Orwell is a hero because she has to take into her own control her own her destiny. And she does this by going through an increasingly difficult series of tests. The first test is a literal battle against a neighboring prince who is a physical danger to her personally and to her kingdom. Uh, a challenge that she overcomes, but then leads to further challenges of her having to become a, a strong, independent ruler in a largely masculine mode, in the sense that she rules as kings do in that part of the world in that time of history. Because that, that part of the world would not have had female rulers. It's a faintly Babylonian kind of setting. Um, Pre-Roman, but not very pre-Roman. You know, first, second uh, century BC, something like that. In a world that doesn't generally allow for, for female kings, she plays that role to perfection. But then she realizes, after a, lo a long, long life that she thought was fairly well-lived, the... Uh, the rug is pulled out from underneath her, and she realizes that all of her life was a sham. Now, this is the, the dark night of the soul portion of the hero's journey that every hero must encounter, and that is usually preceded by 
what is called a, a uh, an apparent victory, where the hero thinks that he or she has come to overcome the most uh, the central problem of her or his life. And she certainly thinks that is the case for her. She believes that she has overcome the singular problem in her life, which was her great sadness at losing Psyche. But in the beautiful moment where she encounters the myth of her life in a fairy tale fashion, uh, which is very different from the way that she thinks her life went, she is forced to en encounter the reality that her whole life, the way she saw it, was a lie. And actually, she had been wrong about everything. And this leads to something called the Dark Knight of the Soul. And she has to go through a kind of uh, transformation through an underworld. And this underworld is represented largely by a series of visions or, or, or waking dreams. Until she comes to the conclusion of it by a eucatastrophic intervention from uh, divine agents, which often happens in the hero's journey. And she comes to the end of her journey being transformed physically. And she sees a reflection of herself. Mirrors play an important role in the story at, at various points, where she sees a reflection of herself as being a very beautiful, slightly different version of her beautiful sister, Psyche. A very strange and very beautiful and very interesting resolution to, to the uh, traditional hero's journey, at which point she dies. And that's, that's the end of her story. But she dies having fulfilled the purpose of the hero's journey, which is always to come back to one's community and infuse it with your own transformation. And the, the novel ends with a, a, a report from the chief priest of, of the goddess Ungit, who lets us know that actually the way that she saw herself was incorrect in almost every respect. And that in spite of her perhaps personal failings or rather spiritual failings, she was in fact a universally loved ruler. And this in spite of the fact that nobody had ever seen her face. She had physically veiled herself to hide her ugliness uh, from the moment that she became queen. A very interesting idea that is worth thinking about and talking about perhaps later. So that's the hero's journey of Orwell. Now, Psyche's journey is a traditional heroine's journey. In a lot of ways, it reflects the journey of Persephone, which is the, the uh, archetypal heroine's journey. The heroine's journey is something like this. The heroine loses something that is dear to her, usually some form of family. And she loses this most of the time, not because of her own fault. And it's complicated it's more complicated than that in the story of Cupid and Psyche or in, the, or in the novel Till We Have Faces because she does, in fact, cause this loss herself, at least partially. Even if her um, her intentions were not evil, she still did it. And because of this loss, and this loss was a loss of everything, it was a loss of family, it was a loss of home, it was a loss of love, she is forced to wander the earth and she does so in by changing her aspect this often happens in heroines' journey where they change the way they look or they assume a, another persona. And she does this by veiling her beauty in, in black, in an interesting counterpoint to Orwell's veiling her ugliness um, in, in something that is a sheer fabric, not black, probably off-white. There's a lot of contrasts, as you're getting in this, in this novel. And then she is forced to go to undergo a series of, of uh, difficulties or, or um, impossible tasks that are assigned to her by the Venus analog in, in the story, the goddess Ungit. 
And she's only able to uh, go through these impossible tasks and achieve them, not as the hero does, because the hero must overcome these difficulties by going out by himself into the wilderness and overcoming them on his or her own. She does this through the mediation of a found family, of a series of characters that are attracted to her by the innocence of her plight, or by the beauty of her person, or by some other attractive quality. Uh, in the original um, myth, the Roman myth, these are a series of characters, uh, including the god Pan, a divine eagle, and eventually Cupid himself. In this novel, the found family is actually her family. It is Orwell herself who is given the opportunity to um, bear the burden of Psyche's difficulty, bear the pain of Psyche's impossible tasks through a very interesting uh, device of the waking dream or vision, where she's physically present in some ineffable way uh, in, in all of Psyche's trials. And at the end of the heroine's journey, there is a, a, a restoration of what she has lost that is usually not one that is as triumphant as the end of the uh, hero's journey. It is usually accompanied by a certain degree of compromise and moral ambivalence. It's generally a happy ending, but one that isn't completely happy, and uh, it still bears the fruits of bitterness that um, were present at the beginning. Uh, whatever the event might be that caused uh, the initial loss to happen. So both journeys, both hero and heroine's journey, are unresolvable on, on some level. Because the hero returns home, and then everything that happens at the, toward the, for the rest of his life is outside of the bounds of the story. We assume that he is able to come and transform his community around him, but we don't generally see that transformation. We assume it happens, we hope it happens, we don't see it. So there is a bit of dot, dot, dot that happens. And in the heroine's journey, the, the moral ambivalence of the, of the uh, compromised ending is one that, that allows for a certain degree of joy and happiness, but not a completely fulfilling one. And both of these, of course, reflect reality in a very realistic way. Because if the, if the hero's journey is a masculine archetype in the sense that it follows uh, a very active going out outside of yourself, out into the wilderness, which is traditionally a masculine trope, and the her heroine's journey is traditionally a more feminine trope, both of them are fraught with the tragedy of the human condition. There is no ultimate happy ending for both, unless there is some eucatastrophe, as Tolkien would put it. And the eucatastrophe is largely outside, the good catastrophe is largely outside of the realm of story itself. So why am I talking about this? The reason is that, as I've tried to express with my three examples of people uh, talking about the importance of these storytelling structures, the reality is that if we enter into these the world of story, it does have a very profound effect on how we see ourselves in our lives. There is really compelling evidence, a point I make repeatedly in my series um, on how stories can unite us during dark times. There is, a very, there is a very good reason to believe that the deeper we enter into storytelling realms, the more they affect us actually in our everyday lives. So the kinds of stories we read, the kinds of movies we watch, the kind of audiobooks we read do have an actual palpable 
influence on how we live and how we affect people around us. Again, if this is a point that you don't think I've made sufficiently well, I do recommend that you check out my series on uh, stories that unite during dark times. Um, listen to the uh, outro of the podcast to find out how you can get it. Lewis certainly understood, understood this. He understood the power of storytelling to transform lives in a very real way. So what he's doing at the end of Till We Have Faces is offering a way out of both the hero and the heroine's journey that is transcendent in a re very real sense. Because what happens at the end is an encounter with the divine. Now, there have been intimations of how this encounter with the divine might happen, and Orwell consistently fights it off. She doesn't want to have anything to do with the divine, playing the role of the angry atheist in a lot of ways. But Psyche is almost too eager and too gullible and too happy in her experience of the divine, especially before she's married to the god of the mountain. She's almost naive in her expectation that the divine will always have our best interest at heart in the sense that our best interest will always mean happy and good things in this life. Both of them are found to be wrong. And both of them come to the realization that the real purpose, or that the real, not the purpose, but the real way that the divine and the human interact in this earth is one primarily of pain. And that pain is actually a good thing. And it's an inevitable thing because it is the pain of acquiring a face where you didn't have one before. This is a really interesting thing because usually we think of scouring or taking off layers to get to the more true layer underneath when we're talking about encounters with the transcendent. But here it's almost as if the humanity, the real true humanity of Orwell is not fully realized in her life. She is like a blank slate or like the blank face of a, of a stone. And her true aspect, her true face needs to be carved out of the rock. And the only one who can carve it out is the God, the God of love, incidentally. But of course, that process in a rock that is living it's going to be excruciatingly painful. And the experience of it is not going to be a particularly pleasant one, except for perhaps certain small intimations of beauty that Orwell consistently, like I said, slaps down and wants nothing to do with. But once she passes through it, and once Psyche passes through the difficulty of her trials, they both come to see themselves in the reflection of the lake in the country of the gods that one can only see in the light of the coming of the divine. And they are both far more human and far more beautiful than they ever were in life. This is the ultimate fulfillment of both the hero and the heroine's journey. If we read a hero's journey, and we, we find ourselves resonating with it. Or if we read a heroine's journey and find ourselves resonating with it, we are taken on this journey, but that journey can only take us to a certain point at which we are left to our own devices to figure out the rest of our lives 
And oftentimes what that means is that we complete or repeat the cycles again and again and again. Which is why we like to return to stories again and again and again. Because they remind us of the need to go through those painful cycles of self-renewal. But this book is reminding us that at the end, ultimately, there is a fulfillment. There is a catharsis. There is a way out of the constant cycle. And that is found in an unveiling, an uncovering, an unmediated encounter with the divine that can be partially experienced here on earth. That is C.S. Lewis's message. And it is a very beautiful one, I think, to anybody, no matter what your belief. Because it's a realistic one and it's an honest one. Too often, people of all faiths and all traditions, even those who don't particularly uh, subscribe to any faith, tend to see the, the divine as something that is benevolently smiling on us at all times. And then when catastrophe comes, almost like small children, we look up with surprise and pain in our eyes and say, why God, aren't you good to us? And it doesn't even matter if you believe in him, you might still be mad at him something you see oftentimes in the sort of archetypal angry atheist of the perhaps Stephen Fry kind. It's naive to think that the divine in the world as it is manifested is always out for your own good. Meaning, out for it is out, out for your own good, but it's not always out for your own pleasure. It's not always there to make you feel good about yourself. Oftentimes, the way that it encounters us because of its surpassingly transcendent quality and our limitation as human beings, however you might see that, I see it in a certain way, of course, that clash between what is greater and what is lesser will necessarily be one of pain. And it's necessary to pass through it. Why? Because through that passage, we get faces, all of us. And I think that's a profoundly beautiful thought. And I... That's the thought I want to leave you with today. And that's something I I would like you to consider as you continue to read whatever stories that you do read. Because these stories do help us deal with the very hard reality of our life. Because our lives are often very hard. And especially now. Now as things keep continue uh, careening from worse to worse reality as we're going from pandemic to war to God knows what's coming next. This is a good reminder that whatever we do pass through, our stories tell us that the heroes of those stories, as they pass through it, they are cleaned. They are scraped of unnecessary things. They are acquiring a face. And that is a good thing. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to delve more deeply into this topic, check out my audio series on stories that unite in dark times, available exclusively at nicholaskotar.com forward slash stories that unite. And if you're hankering for more fantasy stories, check out my own Raven Sun epic fantasy series inspired by Russian fairy tales, available now in audio, paperback, and ebook formats. This show is produced by the wonderful Derek Cummins, and the beautiful title music is Lighthouse in the Rain, originally composed by Velislava Franta. You can find her work on SoundCloud.